Today's scripture reading is from Romans 5, 6 through 11. You can follow along behind me in your Bible app or hard copy Bible in your pew starting on page 942. So again, this is Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time God died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. May God bless the reading of his word. I'd like to now invite Minister Pat, who will share on today's message titled, God's Gift. Good morning, Crossbridge. Merry Christmas. Today, we celebrate the central event in the history of mankind and the central figure who was born into it. We rejoice in the mystery of the incarnation of the Son of God through the birth of Jesus Christ. Today marks a great day of joy and celebration around the world. And this day marks the close of the season of Advent and the end of the sermon series, The Waiting Room. Now, Christmas time is typically fun and exciting season. Many of us have been guessing what's inside that wrapped box that keeps appearing under the tree. Many of us have been feasting, shopping, singing festive carols, and many have braved stormy winter conditions in order to be near family and friends. So it comes as no surprise that amidst all the merriment and trappings of Christmas, well, maybe our first post-COVID Christmas, maybe, we may be also missing why Jesus' birth is so significant. The meaning of Christmas is not found in the journey of the wise men or the shepherd's visit. Meaning is found only in the identity of that baby in whom we seek to worship. In Jesus, God took on flesh so that he could dwell among humankind as one of us. And so he became Emmanuel, literally, God with us. Christmas is about Jesus. And today our message helps us to grasp something of the magnitude of who he is and what he has done. We'll see evidence of God's love for us as we learn that his coming of Christ is the plan of God. It is the proof of God's love, and it's the gift of salvation and rejoicing. But first, would you join me in prayer? Our God in heaven, thank you that you love us so much that you died for us. 
Bless your word to us now and pour your love into our hearts by your Holy Spirit that we might appreciate, live, and walk according to the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. First, his coming is the plan of God, verse 6. Paul tells us that while we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. What does Paul mean by saying that we were weak? You see, the original Greek word here can be translated very rigidly and literally without strength. And we find that in the New King James as well as the Geneva Bible versions. The absence of strength is not the problem, however. Instead, Paul points to a moral problem. We have a moral flaw. And the end of verse 6 identifies that problem. We are ungodly. Our flaw is that we are incapable of correcting our moral problem. We are ungodly and we are weak to change that condition. And in that condition, we are helpless. Now, I am sure that some of us here are quite familiar with that weak, helpless feeling. You may have ordered food at your favorite takeout restaurant. You circle the block as your phone is chiming, reminding you you've got hungry people waiting. When a spot opens up, you pull in and you thank God. You grab your order and as you are returning to your car, you notice the parking person walking away. You look at your phone and you realize you didn't complete that transaction. You may have intended to, but you forgot to pay for parking. And at that moment, moment you have that feeling of helplessness. You see, you can run after that meter person, but we all know how that story ends. It's too late. You make yourself a promise that you're going to check your phone and that app the next time. But that doesn't change the fact that you now owe the town of Lexington. You are helpless. You can neither fix what you have done nor correct your mistake. You've done what you've done, and now you face the consequence. But if instead of violating the civil law, you violate criminal law, you might face jail time. And if you violate God's law, you come under God's judgment. We are helpless and unable to save ourselves when we violate God's law. We are unable to change our condition. We are helpless as lawbreakers. But in verse 6, Paul tells us that we may not need to pay for our mistakes. For at the right time, Jesus pays the price for our mistakes. At just the right moment in time, just when we need it, Jesus pays the price by dying for us. His coming was God's plan from eternity. He's right on schedule. Now, who among us here are parents, right? When your child was born, were you thinking about how they were going to die? Of course not. Now, you see, before the birth of our children, we parents were already making plans and envisioning their success. Tell me I'm wrong, right? 
It's true. Uh, we thought of how they would live, not how they would die, but this was not true of God the Father. God the Son was forever alive until God the Father chose when he would die. The Good News Bible translates verse 6 this way, Christ died for the wicked at the time God chose. The Old Testament foretold Christ's death. Several of such prophecies are found in Psalm 22. During the season of Lent that leads up to Easter Sunday, we will be reading the New Testament and you will recognize many of these quotes from Psalm 22, such as with the cries of verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then in verse 18, what the soldiers would do with Christ's clothing. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And there in Psalm 22, verse 16, you read about death by crucifixion. They have pierced my hands and feet. Don't forget that at the time David composed Psalm 22, the form of capital punishment was stoning and not crucifixion. Notice how meticulously God planned the earthly ministry of the Son by his birth, life, and death. As the author of history, God arranged for Jesus to die as was prophesied. He raised up the Roman Empire just in time for Jesus' death. What was the death penalty imposed by the Romans? It was death by crucifixion. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. That is proof of God's sovereign power over history, but also his sovereign authority over our lives. That's why it's wise to give our lives to Jesus. His coming is the plan of God. Before moving on, let me restate two main points of verse 6. First, we are weak, helpless, and without strength. Second, we are ungodly. In our natural state, we are neither good nor righteous. We are neither deserving nor worthy of saving. We've made mistakes of commission as well as omission that lead to our condemnation. And we are ungodly and helpless to change our condition. So now let's look at verse 7 and see where Paul takes these points. Next, his coming is proof of God's love, verses 7 to 8. The point here is clear and straightforward. People do not die even for worthy people. Now, see, the apostle is not talking about the number of instances of someone dying for another. Instead, he's posed an interesting thought experiment. What is the likelihood that we will find someone who's willing to die for another? Well, if we think about it within our circles, our families, our friends, even for someone whom we know and love, dying for them will not be our first choice. Wouldn't we rather like rescue or treat them or have them healed? 
we would do all that before we considered dying for him. And consider this, even for a hostage, a hostage whom we consider a very, very good person, who would volunteer to be held at gunpoint instead of him? How many people would do that? Very few indeed. But Paul's point is not who would die for a good or righteous person. Paul's not saying Jesus died for the good and righteous. What does verse 6 say? Who did Jesus die for? Jesus died for the helpless guilty and the ungodly. And that is the point of verse 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God proved how much he loves us by sending his son to us while we were yet sinners. When we look closely at what he says and how he says it, we can see that Paul's not comparing willingness. It's not about willingness. He's contrasting those for whom we or Jesus are willing to die. In other words, you or I might sacrifice ourselves for a good and righteous person, but Jesus dies for the guilty sinner and the ungodly. And how can this be? Why did Jesus die for the unrighteous and ungodly? Why did he die for us who are condemned for our guiltiness? In verse 8, God demonstrated and proved his love for us by dying in our place. If we see someone accept the punishment or even the execution in place of a condemned criminal, what do we think? We must conclude that there must be some profound love between them. The one who died must have truly loved that condemned. Christ, having died for the guilty sinner and for the ungodly, proves his love. And by his example, we've seen the epitome of love. Is there any greater show of love than dying for another? You see, the profession of love is not greater. Giving a gift is not greater. The sacrifice of life is the greatest expression of love. While we were yet sinners, Christ proved his love by dying for us. Finally, his coming is God's gift of salvation, verses 9 to 10, and rejoicing, verse 11. Jesus' death provided the means of justification. It means that rather being de declared guilty as we ought to be, we are declared not guilty. We are acquitted and we are set free. Jesus paid the price for our sins so that we do not have to bear the punishment for what we have done. But Paul is not merely stating what Jesus did. Notice how he uses the phrase, much more in verse 9. Now, much more 
is what grammarians call a quantifiable phrase. It's used to compare the appeal of two or more things or to value two things against one another. So when Paul says, therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. He means that however much we believe we have now been justified, we can believe with greater certainty that we will be saved by him. This is how Paul argues from the greater to the lesser. Now let's look again at verse 9. A, the greater, Jesus died to justify us. B, the lesser, so much more he will save us from God's wrath. And this is his point. Jesus has already done that inconceivable greater by dying for the ungodly sinners. Then how much more can we know that God will do the lesser, which is save us from God's wrath? To say it another way, God's already done the difficult thing in sending his son to die for ungodly sinners. How much more will God do the easier thing, which is to save us from wrath? Because God has already done the most difficult thing in Jesus dying for us, we can believe with utmost certainty that God will follow through on the easier things in sparing us. Do you believe that? You see, we can plan, but we realize the success of our plans does not depend on us. We can plan for the future, but we're not even sure whether we're going to make it through this day. But God not only plans, He provides. He is the architect of our salvation and the engineer of its perfection. He is the Father who sent His own Son to be the provision for our salvation. And this salvation that God prepared cannot be bought it is not earned. It is a gift. Today being Christmas, let's open up God's gift. If you'll look with me at verses 9 through 11, I will show you six gifts that I see that come from Jesus Christ. So let's start unwrapping. First, recall what verse 6 said. Christ died for the ungodly. So, who are the ungodly? It's you and it's me. Okay? Verse 8 says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And here is the first gift. Christ presented himself as our substitute. He died in our stead. Now, maybe you've heard that we should be the ones who are hung on the cross and dying for our sins. You see, it's a powerful sentiment, right? But it's misleading, it's unbiblical, and it's the basis of bad theology. Look, even if we were nailed to the cross and we died for our sins, our death would never be enough to pay for those sins. You see, the psalmist explains saying, and this comes from Psalm 49, verse 7 to 8, no one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly, 
No payment is ever enough. Jesus Christ is the only worthy substitutionary payment for our sins. Next, verse 9 says, We have now been justified by his blood. And this is the second gift. Christ is justification for everyone who confesses and repents of his or her sins. God promised that confessed sin becomes forgiven sin. Therefore, God declares the forgiven are not guilty. They are no longer damned or condemned for, um, in judgment. That's why we read in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Apostle Paul assures us in John chapter 3, 17 to 18, writing, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed the name of the only Son of God. Now, let's look again at verse 9 in its entirety. If you've got your Bibles open or your phone app available. Um, the third gift. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Christ is propitiation for his followers. That term propitiation means God is no longer angry with those whom he has forgiven. Wrath for our sins is satisfied in Christ's death upon the cross. Verse 9 means on the day of judgment, Christians will receive God's mercy and not his anger. Next, in verse 10, you will find the fourth gift. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Christ is the reconciliation that changes our status before God. Because of Christ, the reconciled are no longer considered God's enemies, but his friends. And not just friends, but his children. We can read in John chapter 1, verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, Followers of Christ are restored as sons and daughters of God. And reading verse 10 in its entirety, we find the fifth gift. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. You see, notice that phrase again, much more. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Christ is whole life protection. The grace that we have experienced and have today predicts future grace from God. Christians are secure in their relationships with God. Why? Because he rose from the dead on the third day. We accept Jesus as a living Savior, not as a, as a dead one. Hebrews Chapter 7, verse 25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. God 
not only provided for our past, not only for our present, but even also for our future. And in the last verse of our passage, it begins with, more than that, which is a quantifiable phrase equivalent to what we talked about before, much more. So what is Apostle Paul assuring us of here? Beyond all that we've examined so far today, we can also rejoice in God because we have this reconciliation. Because of Christ, we can celebrate what we have. Because of Christ, we can celebrate the grace in which we stand. Because of Christ, what was impossible through the law of Moses is now made possible in his new covenant. The delight of our joy and the rejoicing in God. We're not celebrating ourselves. We are celebrating God and what he has done by giving us his own son, Jesus Christ. And so today, we saw that his coming is the plan of God. It is the proof of his love. It is the gift of salvation and of rejoicing. Those are the reasons why Jesus came and the reason for this season. Let us share this good news with our loved ones. You see, Christmas is not merely an enchanting story or tradition. It celebrates a particular and decisive moment in history. God, knowing exactly what you need, sent you a Savior, His Son, who demonstrated His love for you in His sacrifice. He loved you when you were at your deepest depravity in order that He might lift you up and make you holy. And that is true love. It's the kind of love that you have from your creator, God in heaven, who did all this because he thought that you are worth it. You won't find such love in anyone or in any place else in this life or universe. May you all be willing to receive God's gift. And when you experience his incomparable love, be ready to rejoice in salvation. Let's pray. Oh God, our most loving Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son and your salvation that allows us to have an unbreakable covenant bond with you. Thank you for the light of your Holy Spirit who leads us through the dark nights of the soul and strengthens us for your purposes. In your mercy, may you give us humble, earnest hearts to embrace the gift of your Son evermore and to follow him faithfully and fruitfully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.